Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Brazil. I do. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I Welcome to the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I am truly humbled and honored that you've taken the time to spend some time with me today. Before we jump in, I'd like to let you know that this episode is brought to you by you. That's right, folks. This podcast exists because you want it to. And despite requests that come in for sponsorship, we have no paid advertising supporting this show. This approach gives me the opportunity to maintain an unbiased voice while conducting these interviews. I do have one request and ask of you, however. If indeed you do find these podcasts interesting and valuable, I would greatly appreciate it if you would do me the simple favor of recommending and sharing it through whatever medium you choose, offline or online. If you want to throw a hashtag, I love data centers, in any online shares you do, even better. Thank you once again, and I hope you enjoy listening to this next interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. Welcome, everybody, back to another episode of I Love Data Centers. I am pretty excited to have our guest today, Mr. Aaron Hughes, a friend of mine going back since I started in the industry. Uh, Aaron, for those who don't know you, um, I just want to make a quick Quick mention of this, I don't think I've ever told you this, but you, when I first started working in the industry, were an example of someone who's also capable of successfully juggling multiple roles at the same time. And as a entrepreneur who's always got his hands in multiple different buckets, uh, I really have looked up to you as someone who's been able to successfully accomplish that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people who they stick their head down and they focus just on one thing and they blaze forward. Um, but as we'll get into here in a little bit, you've got yourself involved in about a half a dozen different organizations in about three or four different companies, and you're able to successfully make all those uh, work and, and move balls forward and, and make them all successful. So I just want to thank you, my friend, for, for being such a great example for me uh, since the moment I met you. Well, you're quite welcome, and that's really uh, fantastic to hear. I'm, I'm honored and humbled. Uh, I do enjoy uh, certainly juggling, and you know that's probably stemmed from uh, boredom at an early age, and has turned into something that I really enjoy and, uh, and thrive on now. And now I love it; it's part of my daily life. So, for those who who don't know you, um, Aaron is hands down one of the uh, most well-rounded and smartest and experienced network engineers I've ever met. Um, and had the pleasure of knowing personally, having lived uh, near each other in Santa Cruz, California for close to a decade. Um, but Aaron, could you just briefly for the audience give uh, just an overview of, of what your role is today, and then we can kind of backfill the, the historical context? Certainly. Uh, so my primary role today is uh, CEO, founder, and president of a company called Six Connect, which is a network automation company focused on IP address management, DNS management, peering automation, and uh, integration with all kinds of stuff. Today, people need a lot of, uh, of uh, workflow integration. Uh, I also uh, serve as United Layer's chief network architect and serve on quite a few boards uh, frequently as chairman. 
including uh, OpenIX, HearingDB, uh, some advisory boards, uh, etc. So we'll we'll get into the etc. here, um, but I'd love for the audience to hear uh, your story and your journey uh, to kind of set the stage for for what you're doing now because it's it's fascinating and and just a fun fun story. But I remember us sitting down having coffee. Um, God, back in 2007. Um, and I asked you, you know, how the heck did you get started in the industry? How did you, you know, what was your first exposure tech to technology? And, uh, I'd love for you to tell, tell everyone that story. Well, it's a, it's a bit of a long one, but, um, I'm happy to give a summary. I uh, was going to high school, you know, Boston English high school in, in Massachusetts, uh, after having taken a big move from Oregon to Boston. And, uh, even at an early age, I, I happened to be a smoker and I was outside with the headmaster one day who uh, was you know, having a fairly stern conversation with me about how poorly I was doing in school and suggested that he had a, a project that I could get involved with where IBM Coalition of Schools was coming in to give Boston English High School a grant, uh, to install uh, some Nobel netware and some IBM model PS 255s to set up an education network. It was a closed network inside the school. Uh, and I of course agreed to do it, even not really knowing what it was. You know, I was just dabbling in bulletin board services back then and a little bit of basic programming, but that was really coincidence. And, uh, you know, the serendipitous moment of having had that dialogue put me uh, smack in the middle of building out infrastructure I knew nothing about and for its time was was rather cutting edge, you know, and cutting edge then was 4 meg token ring and 3COM 3C509 Ethernet cards and IBMs that you had to actually insert floppy disks to you know, to recognize whatever system you put in place and uh, very limited SCSI drives that were fairly small and uh, and so on. So so that, that, that network service at the time, I believe, was called CLASS, C-L-A-S-S, uh, which was an educational uh, service. Ended up uh, working with the IBM team to build out that infrastructure for the school, which is about uh, serving about 5,000 students. And uh, eventually that led to uh, me receiving a grant to go to a Harvard Extension School and take a CS. Uh, my first course there was uh, a hardware co- course called The Art of Electronics by Hazen Horowitz. And at the time, I lived in the, the back bay south end of Boston, and uh, Harvard Extension was done out of the CS department uh, up in Cambridge. Uh, and I was a skateboarder, so I, I skateboarded back and forth to go to school, and uh, I took the train to go to high school. And... Uh, while I had a, a nice base of then hardware, you know, I learned I learned at, at at Harvard CS how to actually build physical machines on braille boards, and, and probably one of the, the best lessons I ever had in my life. Uh, I happened to skate by um, ten thirty Mass Ave, which was uh, Channel One bulletin board service, and stopped in one day. I had a chat with the, uh, the then owners of the company, um, Brian and Tess Hedder, about what they were doing. 
And with a few hours of just having a chat out on the street, uh, I had managed to work my way into getting a job there. And I had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. I mean, I remember one of the questions that Brian asked me is if I knew what a T1 was. And I had pictured like a black box in my head. I, I, I thought it was some kind of hardware. And of course, I smiled and nodded. And of course, I know what a T1 is. I had absolutely no clue. But managed to get my foot in the door. And, uh, and that really started what became you know, sort of the snowball rolling down a mountain uh, of a career uh, that turned into you know, a fairly critical time where you had to actually know everything about everything and learn as you went and no real books for reference or peers, uh, but, but started my career path down this service provider, big umbrella of a space. And that was in, geez, uh, the, the early to mid nineties. So two questions going back. One, you mentioned you had started dabbling in um, basic and and on built bulletin boards, where did you get access to computers to to do that? And how how did you gain access to do that? Well, uh, the basic is an odd one. So somewhere around 1993, uh, a relative of mine had given me, you know, what they called a computer back then. It was a, a little tiny NEC that kind of looks like a laptop. It was a little flat computer that only did basic telecom and text. Uh, I mean, this thing had 8K of ROM and had extension slots for 8K of RAM. It was so old. Um, but it did you know, allow you to write basic code and, uh, and have some serial connectivity. The, so that, that was sort of my, my background in, in basic. Uh, and then in, in terms of bulletin board services, you know, eventually I got my, my next computer, which had a, a modem. I mean, I think it was probably a you know, 600 or 1200 baud modem. And, uh, you know, there were a full few bulletin board services around where you could you know, actually have some conversations with people over what were much more like telecom bulletin board services and you could exchange you know small files because the data rates were so slow uh and it was just fascinating you know it was a way to take me out of the the dark room that was usually me just kind of being a bit of a loner and actually interact with some people who had somewhat similar geeky interests so when you were working at um, in high school to build out the network with the crew from IBM, were did you, were there a handful of them that were dedicated to just working with you on that project that you kind of picked up as mentors through the process? So I was really one of two resources at Boston English that interacted with IBM Coalition of Schools. Uh, the other one was a, a teacher who I, I think had a degree in mathematics and primarily taught that and, and took over what, what became a computer lab later. Uh, so the, the team really just worked with the two of us. One, you know, paid staff for the high school and, and me, you know, the only student working on the project. Uh, I, I think, and I, I imagine, you know, the headmaster just saw something in me and, and gave me this opportunity. And then, yeah, he, he and I were really the only two that worked with IBM Coalition Schools to deploy all of the hardware, all of the wiring, 
all of the software, all of the networking, all of the debugging, um, and really learning how to get you know an education system like that to utilize this this new tool uh, for education purposes. So it was absolutely fascinating, right? I think I think both you know we and IBM Coalition Schools were learning from this experience. Those experiences that you had in those early days, I'm sure you had mentioned a handful of them so far, but what one of the unique things that I think you have, and this is a roundabout way of me getting to this, one of the unique skill sets that you have um, is not only are you extremely technically proficient, but you're also able to communicate well <laughs> with, with others. Uh, and that's something that most uh, engineers who are extremely bright and talented lack right? Because they just don't either have the experience or the desire. Um, was there something in those in your early childhood or like, how, how was it? How is it that you were able to pick up those soft skills through the process? <laughs> That's probably a funny story. I mean, the short answer was I wanted more money. There, there was a point at which, you know, I was a fairly well-rounded sysadmin, a fairly well-rounded network admin, knew some coding, and I was at that time working at uh, Ultranet Communications, which is a small ISP in Marlboro, Massachusetts, uh, working for a guy called Joe Provo. And I asked him at one point for a raise, and uh, he told me I was crazy. I was making the most money that I could make for the level of engineer that I was, and that the only real other option was to, to go into management and, you know, there happened to be an opening as the, uh, the knock manager. Uh, and so I took the role having, uh, <laughs> not having the skills to, to execute it well and learned as I went. And it was, you know, I guess it's a you know, sink or swim. I, 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 I jumped into a team of people that was, uh, they had uh, interesting, diverse backgrounds and different flavors of communication and uh, and had to keep this changing infrastructure up. I mean, at that point, it was sort of best effort. So if you had an outage, it wasn't a huge deal, but it, it, but it was really important to keep this infrastructure up and running. And, and all of that involved learning how to effectively communicate with each other, uh, learning how to translate you know, really uh, technical needle in a haystack style debugging and concepts into things that were well articulated to our peers and other colleagues in other places. So I, I think this probably came from, you know, uh, a combination of that and uh, and the desire to be able to take time off. You know, I, I remember as an example, one of the things that we used to do when I was training NOC staff was we would set people up at tables facing each other with their computers uh, so that they couldn't see each other's monitors and uh, force the dialogue of debugging a problem that I would stage in, in a lab environment where they weren't allowed to look at each other's monitors. The idea was that they had to communicate with each other face-to-face uh, -face and talk through a problem uh, with the idea that if they were taking a vacation on an island somewhere, they could understand the problem, get to the root cause, and get to a solution over the phone. And uh, back in, in that time, you know, it was unheard of to be, uh, you know, a remote worker. And it was you know, nearly impossible for any good engineer to take a holiday because you were so dependent on for keeping infrastructure running. But that, to me, always stuck with me. Like, I, I wanted to be 
on an island. I wanted to be on holiday and not worry about whether or not I could put my fingers on a keyboard or see blinking lights on a box and be able to effectively and quickly diagnose a problem and get things back up and running. So that's probably where that desire came from. Were there any, I mean, did you start looking for books and talking to people to learn those soft skills or was it just truly trial, trial and error, you know, trying to figure it out as you were going? <laughs> there certainly weren't a lot of books back then. Uh, you know, at the time there was a, well, there still is, there's a publisher called O'Reilly uh, and Associates that had a very few books on well-known solutions. So some basic networking or back then the, the mail server uh, that everybody used was called SendMail. So there was a, you know, a thousand page book on all the bits of SendMail that you could configure and learn. But, but so much of the reading material that was out there was stale by the time you read it. I mean, the internet was changing so fast that uh, material didn't exist. You know, effective communication methods didn't exist. Best current operational practices didn't exist, right? You, you, you would, you know, let's use a simple example, like, like a maintenance notification where how would you format an email? You know, what would the subject look like? What would the content of that message look like? What did that decomp look like to describe what you were doing and how it was going to impact people who was operating uh, the maintenance? What are the points of contact were? what you were going to execute, what happened if something failed, how would you roll back, how would you inform customers, etc. Things that are well-known practices today didn't really exist. So we were figuring it out as we went along and we were teaching each other. So you might see you know, an example from another uh, network or another company uh, and, and use part of that or parts of bits of things that you've seen around from other uh, uh, peers in the industry and then make your own best current operational practice. So it really was sort of the wild west and and learning on your own. The that um you know but behind your back I call it uh I I call you you and some of your peers the cabal the network cabal right because you, you guys travel the world together to uh amazing remote locations and um get to learn together and you know party together and have developed some very very intimate relationships with with one another. Um, through that process, which is which is awesome, um, but the the early days, right when you you kind of hit on it, you were all teaching one another, right? Um, you know, yep. before before Nanog, before Apricot, before any of these organizations existed, like what what was the medium through which you guys would work with one another and learn from one another and teach one another? So it's interesting. I think it evolved uh, geographically in in different ways. Uh, I was in the New England when communication was evolving for networking. And in New England, we had a, an IRC server for, uh, and for those that don't know what IRC is, it's basically like a, a group text environment, uh, where we could be on, on channels. Uh, we had a, um, you know, and, and sort of an open discussion with all of the, engineers in the industry in one space and that uh that derived from needing to talk to each other when something went wrong or when there was maintenances or we were debugging something together and ended up being you know this this sort of conversation window this irc channel that was open 24 hours a day every day to any network engineer who had value for anything when something went wrong and of course when things were working we just we're having social conversation the whole time uh, and eventually turned into a, 
uh, what we called a, a PSU barbecue. PSU was Package Slingers Union, where uh, we always had this sort of informal group that protected each other uh, and helped each other change positions uh, between you know organizations that existed for networking and system opportunities. Uh, we held an annual barbecue. Uh, we'd held we'd hold like little beer outings maybe once a month at a local bar in Massachusetts. And and even as people spread out in New England geographically, as as the industry started to evolve and more jobs started to open up that were outside of our very small geographic environment, people would still join you know the annual barbecue. We'd still get together quite regularly and uh, and and just hang out and enjoy each other's company it's a place where you know we could be geeks and we're accepted socially so i mean that, that grew over time right you know these, these days we have we have conferences which have sometimes thousands of people or we can all get together on a on a regular basis and still have that that sense of intimacy uh, but back then there was really only you know sort of one or two things like uh some were organized some were like sushi cabals some were beer outings but it always involved these communities of people that just really didn't have any other uh, place to go socially. And how, how did that network, I guess I'm curious um, how the evolution, the sheer number of people who are a part of that ecosystem. Um, I, I always go back to that scene in the matrix. I think it's the second movie where the, you know, pseudo mayor of Zion, which is the you know community that lives in the earth that's hiding from the machines on the, on the surface of the planet um, takes uh, Neo down to the, the under layer of Zion and shows these big moving gears and parts and explains to him that, um, there's really only two people that know how all this stuff works. <laughs> and if anything happened to those two, two people, we'd, we'd be doomed. Um, and there's very little documentation. And even if someone did see the documentation, they'd probably make very little sense of it. Um, and I kind of liken the brave new digital world that we live in today to a similar paradigm and that there's very few people who understand how at the core of the infrastructure that runs the world we live in today uh, works. And you're, you're one of those few who understands it, both from, a, you know, as you mentioned prior, the, the hardware layer all the way to the software layer and everything in between, the BIOS layer, that full seven-layer stack, you know, you, you get each layer and the role of each layer and how it all fits together to make, make uh, the internet work um, and make systems work. Um, and I, I, I can imagine... In the early days, and you know, we're talking seventies, eighties, nineties. There was really only a handful of people who understood how this stuff actually worked and how it played with um, all the different layers, such that if anything happened to those individuals, you know, we'd kind of be screwed. <laughs> our, our whole way of life would would be wiped away. Um, can you kind of speak to that and how a how that's evolved? Uh, and then I'll come back with a follow-up. But how have you seen that community of people who understand that core work um, evolve over time? Yeah, that's that's a really big topic. Uh, there's there's so many places to go in there. You're you're absolutely right. It, it was every one of us was a single point of failure. Uh, there were so few people that really truly understand how delicate and fragile the internet was for many years and it wasn't just about you know what you could basically functionally do 
whether it was just simple provisioning or uh, you know, executing a maintenance to make a change. So that could be for capacity or upgrade or features, et cetera. Uh, there was a long period of time where you had to work with your vendor incredibly closely to get software builds deployed on infrastructure and were afraid when you hit enter on a regular basis. Uh, you know, thinking about it, it, it it's nearly mind blowing, right? Like it, it, it could, you could have a router crash because of a card being in a certain slot of your router, whether it was on, you know, one side of a bus or another side of a bus or, one piece of technology had a different firmware than another piece of technology. There, there was none of the you know, sort of plug and play environment that we have now where you can just shove things in and out of any open uh, slot or card or whatever and, and expect it'll work. It, it was a time where I recall on so many occasions working with vendors like Cisco where we get a custom piece of software built because we ran into this very specific set of bugs because of the combination of hardware and how we had it in and what services we were running and uh, uh, you, you know it was amazing like you, you'd, you'd make a change and then break something and fall back and then have a dialogue with your vendor and get a custom piece of software and then take another maintenance put it in play uh, and turn it up and go and, and and if it was up for a few hours everybody would be relieved and go okay you know now the knock can take a nap and, and go it, everything's okay uh, the evolution is is uh, is interesting. I, you know, I don't know if it's good or bad. Right? I find that today, people that come into this industry understand things very well, fairly high up in the stack, but not necessarily how things work. There, if they're software engineers, for example, they might use a lot of programming tools that already have things built for them and structures, uh, and you mean know, maybe not even use a compiler anymore. Uh, or, you know, I mean, you know, if we, if we were writing software, you know, 20 years ago, we might actually write a compiler or know how the compiler works or get the compiler as code and, and really look at it. Uh, and in, in hardware today, everything is dead simple. You can buy from any vendor. You can, you know, just, uh, assume that upgrades are going to be clean and that new hardware is generally going to do what it is advertised to do. Uh, not to say that that's 100% true, but but generally speaking, everything just works and, and you can have much more reliance that reliability in your, your vendor selection, your hardware selection than you did you know, 15, 20 years ago. It's created a new kind of engineer where there's no reason to understand the guts of things. There's no real reason to understand how things work because vendors are big public companies where they must be reliable. They must go through incredible amounts of QA, quality assurance, and uh, you should be able to rely on things that you purchase, whether they are software or hardware or services. And if you don't, you simply disappear from the industry. So the, I guess the real evolution is that as an engineer, you don't have to understand how everything works because you can now depend on the relationships you have with all of your vendors. And back then you, you couldn't, it was, it was more of a collaboration 
to expect that if we all work together, even with interoperability issues, we could we could get on the phone together and work something out and get to a solution where we get something up together. And that partnership just doesn't have to exist anymore. And that's that's kind of where I'm going. Are there any like where are we teaching engineers about that core core layer? Like how all this stuff, the, the guts of it work. I'm just maybe I'm ignorant of it. I just don't see very much of that going on. And even even today at the a lot of the conferences, whether it's PTC or Nanog or or the, or the like, um, a lot of it is now focused on the software defined network, which goes back to what you were saying. It's that it's that top layer. It's the software layer. It's not speaking to rethinking about and or educating new people on the guts and how it all works at the core. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Am I way off base? Are there resources and tools and trainings going on that I'm just not privy to? No, you're absolutely right. What you're hitting on is a fairly scary topic in some senses and, and maybe a comfortable relieving topic in another sense. Uh, it is very rare to find someone who even wants to know how things work below a certain layer or, uh, or, or understand every knob in a protocol. The, the training that you're talking about certainly can't exist anymore. The SLAs are, are too high. You're not really allowed to make big mistakes. So it's far harder to tell someone, you know, go ahead, go ahead and try it. You know, let, let's see what happens. Let's learn from this together. You have to do everything in, in lab environments where the mistakes, the environment, the traffic, the challenges are, are different because they're labs. And in the, in the real world, you experience all kinds of difference in challenges. So uh, you, you really have to seek out the diamonds. And, and there, are, there are many of us in this, this sort of small industry that, that look for diamonds in the rough. You, know, you, you can always kind of smell someone that, is special and you embrace them you, you teach them privately you introduce them to other people every resource that they can possibly need to, to thrive in the space but that old school mentality of you must know everything uh, is gone there, there are just so few people that will spend the time, have the resources, and have the environment to, to learn in that kind of way anymore. And there's a lot more stuff to learn. So it's, it's really hard to get up to the baseline of, oh, just, just install your hypervisor, right? Just install ESX and boom, everything's going to just work. You know, what's below that? Uh, it's history. And, and, and that seems to be okay in a lot of ways. It, it, it certainly allows for people to innovate in the services space, but it is definitely scary in the, you know, what, what happens if your vendor was wrong? What happens if there's, you know, some massive underlying fundamental thing that's broken? And, and I think a lot of the, the older school folks have just kind of come to accept that that's the way reality is today. Uh, it, you know, I mean, it's sort of comparable to going like, at least in, in, uh, in, in most places in the world where you, you turn on the light switch and electricity works and you assume your electric grid is reasonable. And if there's some massive storm, you know, maybe you get an out outage for a few hours a year. But for the most part, we assume like the electric grid is pretty solid and resilient and, and so on. 
But if you really dug into how the electric grid works, you find out that actually it's not very resilient and it can actually go down for massive amounts of time. Uh, I, I think the evolution of internet infrastructure as a whole is very different than that, where when people look at it and go, yeah, it seems pretty reliable. My internet works all the time. It really actually has become that resilient and dependable. So, you know, some of it's okay. It's okay that we don't actually learn how things work anymore. It, it creates job security for those who do, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I mean, sort of. It's, 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 you know, it's a funny thing to say, right? It's like I'm selling an insurance policy. Right. You know, if, if you as a small company kept on a really high-end network engineer that never did anything because the infrastructure never went down, you know, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing, right? I'm, I'm investing in the insurance policy for the very rare occasion where something can go wrong that your, your average engineer can't fix on their own, you know, or do you react in a different way? So I don't know, job security, maybe, or, or maybe that's just old. And, and if you, if you don't know uh, a depth of a lot of subjects, a lot of uh, services, then maybe you're not as valuable anymore. Maybe that isn't job security. Yeah. Um, I would think that the, the likes of your, you know, with, with the hyperscale cloud providers, Microsoft, Amazon, um, Google, on the monumental rise that they're on, they, they desperately need that talent that understands that core layer because they don't want the enterprise customers uh, and individuals leveraging the services to have to worry about it, right? That's one of the big value propositions for leveraging an infrastructure as a service or a hosted environment. It shouldn't be yeah. your problem. You should focus on that top end. So I think that's a, you know, just a reality, whether it's good or bad as you're, as you're contemplating here. I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's, to me, it's, it's frightening. Just as you mentioned the, the electrical grid, um, you know, a lot of this stuff is, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of duct taped together. Uh, and I want to get to that because you mentioned that the, how fragile the internet was, right? Um, in what ways is the internet less fragile today than it was in the past? And, you know, I, I think I might be able to make the argument that it's more fragile today than it's ever been before, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, uh, you could argue both sides of this pretty easily. So let's start with what you just mentioned, like these, these big service providers, uh, AWS, Microsoft, Google, Alibaba, whatever, all these providers that people are using as a, a central service provider for your business. There's the argument for introducing dependency rather than fragility, which is that, you know, Facebook goes down or Twitter goes down and everybody panics. I mean, it's not really panics. It's just social media, but you see it happen and you use the other one to talk about which one's down. If AWS or, or, or the like goes down, that's a massive amount of infrastructure that is just off the internet. Uh, and that's really scary. But it doesn't mean that the internet is down. So I guess it uh, sort of depends on how you define it. The way that the internet has become less fragile is that it's in so many places. So if we're just going to be sort of U.S. focused for the moment, uh, when I talk about internet infrastructure, there was a time where you could say very easily, I can name all of the data centers and internet 
exchanges off the top of my head, and that would be like May East, May West, ADDS NAP, uh, Sprint NAP, Pensacon. Uh, it was a small number of places where, like, you know, a very few of us had keys to get into the place and put in infrastructure or connect somebody to an exchange. Today, there are thousands of internet exchanges, these places where networks connect such that uh, like Hydra, if you cut off a head, you don't even notice that the head is gone for the most part. There are very few places on the, the whole global internet infrastructure where if you took something down, it would actually really hurt the internet as a whole. So that's a dramatic change in resiliency. But I agree with you, you also have this, this you know, sort of contraindicating uh, move towards putting services on central providers. Now, luckily, they do have that history and that talent and the experience to build real resiliency and redundancy into their services where they're trying to go for a recovery time objective of zero. And they're executing it really well. Right Before, before the Amazons, Microsofts, Googles, Oracles uh, of the world, these, these virtualization providers existed, they they you know they were the pioneers that were inventing this critical infrastructure service layer above you know bare metal and network and for the first time you could stop worrying about everything under your service and they had to build it right and i'm sure they they made some mistakes along the way and they figured out how to get through those to make it incredibly resilient as well but it's not it's not perfect, right? There's there's nothing out there that's going to be perfect. So the only way to truly make recovery time, recovery point objectives of zero is to use a lot of different providers that is truly independent on their infrastructure and everything all the way down to the, you know, the power, the fiber and the ground and make sure that you build resiliency, redundancy into your service or software itself. Because absolutely, everybody's going to have outages. So this... I remember us having a conversation to this extent at your place on the beach in Santa Cruz years ago. I literally can close my eyes and know exactly where we were when we were having it. And we were talking about IPv4 and IPv6 and how IPv6 is going to change the game um, for uh, how we use the Internet of Things and, you know, afford the ability to even have so many IP addresses tagged to everything from a stapler to, you know, your refrigerator to whatever, your socks. Um, but you, you mentioned something as it relates to that. And you said, well, Sean, with that many more IP addresses, you're now enabling that many more uh, devices that can be leveraged in something like a DDoS attack. So you have that much more traffic and bodies that can be attacking at any given time. And that simple thought I had never even considered until you'd mentioned it and it totally reframed how I thought about the, you know, how the world is evolving and how all of this is shaping over time. And just knowing that with all these new devices coming out, there are potential threats and risks that I think many who are building on that software layer uh, are completely unaware of. Um, They're not thinking through security. Security is no longer uh, something that is top of mind in the development process. It's kind of an afterthought of, well, how do we lock it down after we built it versus how do we ensure that what we're building is secure from the start? 
I tend to do this in our conversations and I hate to do this now, but I'm asking like a million questions in, in one, one comment. But um, the first thing I want to start with is IPv4 and IPv6. And for those listening, um, you know, let's try to uh, walk through exactly what the differences are between the two so that we can at least get some baseline understanding. And then we can talk through how, uh, you know, is IPv4 space truly gone? Uh, and how is IPv6 uh, a game changer and or different than what we're, the protocol that we're used to working with in IPv4? Okay. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You just hit about uh, oh, four or five hours of conversational topics. Uh, starting with the basics, yeah. uh, IPv4. So, yeah, so, so the, the, the IP version 4 uh, was invented you know, some time ago, um, 30 whatever years ago, uh, had about 3 billion usable addresses. And the, the number is actually 32 bits, so it's 4 billion and some change, but 3 billion roughly usable v4 sort of public IP addresses. Uh, and it was designed as an experimental protocol, right? It was, it was never built for what the internet is today, which I think we're all sort of roughly aware of, right? It, it, you know, we, we grew to some points that we had to make some changes to accommodate the growth. And there were a couple of choices. One was redesign the internet to work for what it was looking to become uh, in that sort of dot-com boom era when we knew uh, that none of our infrastructure was going to meet the needs of the services that were coming. And what we did instead of uh, fixing the underlying challenges with uh, the maximum number of things that we could have connected to the Internet was uh, invent something called NAT, the Network Address Translation, uh, which allowed people to use what they commonly refer to as a private IP space or 10Net or 192.168 or 172.16.14 or sometimes referred to as uh, RFC 1918, uh, that, that, that IP space that allowed you to connect devices to the internet that didn't have dedicated public IP addresses. Uh, in the interim, uh, you know, sorry, so that, that helped for a lot of years of growth of the internet. You know, you got three, three billion IPs and you got 20 billion devices connected to it and growing. Uh, so they share, you know, infrastructure today shares a lot of, uh, of common IP, public, unique IPs in the V4 space uh, to connect to the internet. Uh, well, there's a, there's another wall we're running into, maybe have already run into, which is that the number of public uh, V4 addresses available in the free pool, those that are unused, uh, are, are now coming very close to zero. Uh, and that is uh, globally true. So, uh, a new protocol was created many years ago called IP version six. And instead of having 3 billion total available addresses, uh, it has roughly 340 undecillion addresses, which is a very, very big number. Uh, people frequently compare it to the same number as every grain of sand on the planet. Uh, it's very big. Uh, and we are, you know, th thus enabling growth of the global internet, the number of devices that can be connected to the internet that have unique addresses. So we can have a very long conversation. Go ahead. So real quick, and I know I had this question initially, and I'm sure some of our listeners do. 
when when you have an IPv6 address versus an IPv4 address, does that in what way is it limiting or is it limiting at all for you to have that address recognized um, by you know the global set of switches and routers that um, direct traffic? So it's almost a non-issue today. Uh, most parts of the global internet to operate on either stack, either v4 or v6 or both. However, if you're operating with v4, you are operating on an internet that continues to get more chewing gum and rubber bands and extra layers to allow you to exist because there is no new space. So uh, while you have uh, you know, network address translation, as an example, uh, as one method to allow v4 to continue, uh, there are other layers of NAT that are being introduced. Um, the most common one is referred to as carrier-grade NAT, where your very large uh, providers for eyeball services, so uh, your cable, DSL, uh, satellite, uh, et cetera, are natting your NAT, which means your performance is degrading as time goes on with V4, and your performance with V6 is the same or better over time because you have unique addresses for anything that you want to connect that never need to be translated. They can make direct connections to anything else on the V6 internet. But does that presuppose that the major carriers that own and control um, the vast majority of the routers and switches um, that they've now sta- they've standardized on this IPv6 um, routing protocol? Generally speaking, yes. And, and, and I only say generally speaking because there are parts of the world where uh, V6 is not uh, enabled. There are you know, parts of the internet. They're, they're sort of many different internets, right? So when we think about internet infrastructure in the U.S., you primarily think about picking up a device, you know, a tablet, a pad, a phone, uh, connecting to social media, connecting to your mail, streaming your your video services. Those things today are V6 enabled. You know, you hit uh, Netflix, Facebook, whatever. You're going to get those services over V6 and your Telephone provider is also V6 enabled. Most of your cable providers and DSL providers are already V6 enabled. Uh, if you if you don't uh, know whether or not wh- whether yours is today, pick up your device, open up a browser, and just type in "What's my IP?" and you'll probably see a very long number separated by colons, which means you are connected to the V6 internet. Uh, you just don't know it, right? So. In, in this part of the world, that, that, that change is being made without you understand it's happening such that the infrastructure can continue to grow and survive without having to enable those, uh, those extensions or those V4 life extension services. Gotcha. And then the, the other interesting topic here tied to just this is who, who determines the standards around IPv4, IPv6? What, what is that governing body? <laughs> Boy, is, is that a challenging subject? I'm, I'm smiling while there, I'm asking there, that question, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, so, so there's a, there's, 
it, you know, technically the way that this should work is that uh, there's an organization called the IETF, which is uh, an open bottom-up organization that anybody can participate in where you can uh, submit drafts for protocol designs and they get uh, to work through and they, you know, make changes and they get vetted in and, uh, you know, eventually that becomes an RFC. It's called a request for comments draft where then that is the standard that everybody operates on. And you're expected to, as any vendor, service provider, et cetera, to, to follow these guidelines. Um, uh, they are the standard. They are the protocol. Uh, vendors are expected to, to implement things uh, and, and so on. There's so many RFCs out there that not everybody can implement everything. So in reality, it actually works something like uh, you know, the, the providers that are aware of the needs to serve their customers and their services work with their vendors to say, this needs to be implemented. Uh, and if there's enough demand or money behind it, uh, that gets implemented. Uh, good or bad, whether it's a, a standard or not. And if it's implemented widely enough, uh, the the wide implementation can backfill the standard. So the hope is that the the standards bodies, the people that work in the standards bodies, are ahead of, are thinking ahead of the, the needs of the consumers of services and developing standards that are uh, easy for vendors to implement and meet the needs of the, the users of those services. So it, it's kind of working both ways right now, where sometimes we, we, we hit one out of the park from uh, the standards on down that get disseminated to the vendors and the providers, and they end up providing services for the end users. And other times, you know, something wild that's done wrong gains popularity and momentum and ends up implemented as the standard. And then we try and go back, you know, eventually go back and put it in the standards process uh, to, to meet sort of the desired outcome for how standards are implemented. So are we, are we talking more of like a egalitarian type of format where everyone has equal say or more of like an oligarchian uh, format where there's a small group of decision makers who kind of vet and qualify whether or not the requests coming through have merit and can be supported or not. <laughs> depends. Uh, it depends. It really does depend. It, it depends on the area of standard. You know, it, so if you if you think about sort of critical services on the on the internet. Uh, the more critical the service, sort of the smaller number of people that are experts who are involved. So uh, DNS is a great example, right? Name resolution, that is, I have a host name and I need to resolve it to uh, an IP or many IPs, that basic translation process that allows us all to type in things and connect to objects on the internet. There's a fairly small number of people involved in, um, in making changes to DNS standards. And there are a fairly small number of vendors that actually provide the DNS resolver services. So you can probably fairly carefully make changes that are reasonably good for the internet for growth. Uh, whereas if we look at something like, say, uh, the, you know, the standards for interacting with a light bulb 
in the IoT space, you have completely different implementation from the likes of a you know Philips Hue versus a LifeX versus whatever you buy on the market. Uh, and most of the time, those vendors invent something that is considered proprietary. And until there is you know enough domination of a provider or ubiquity by defaults, there's really no reason to go back and uh, and backfill a standard. And it's it's hard sometimes for the the people who spend most of their 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 time working on protocol development to necessarily be connected to what the market is doing uh, in an innovative sense, whether that's from like a PR and marketing stand or a technology stand or you know just what's become popular because it's the default thing to use. So there there's a fairly interesting disconnect between sort of current. Uh, device and software development and you know the old school standards process for how do you you know develop a protocol to be used on infrastructure that is what we call sort of quote unquote critical internet infrastructure so in what capacity does an organization such as as Aaron right so uh, for those who are not familiar the American Registry for Internet Numbers, right, which I know you've been intimately involved with, is is a governing body. Where well, I don't know if it's even a governing body, um, but they are very influential in the process um, of determining what the future of the internet is going to look like. So, how, how does an organization such as Aaron play a, a part in that process? So, uh, Aaron. Uh, is an RIR. It's a regional internet registry. Um, there are five of them on the globe. Uh, so just very quickly, you've got Afrinic uh, for Africa, APNIC for Asia, Aaron for uh, uh, North America, uh, Canada and the Caribbean, uh, LACNIC for Latin America, and uh, RIPE NCC for all the countries in Europe. These are the, the five uh, nonprofit organizations that serve their globally uh, sort of local region for policy and uh, and distribution of IP resources. They are primarily focused on policy related to uh, how you use IP number resources uh, and not the actual standards for protocol development. Um, there, there, are, there are sort of several different buckets of of nonprofit organizations that are designed to be bottom up where community members are involved in evolving the internet. Uh, some are standards like uh, protocol standards like the IETF. Some are for numbers and sort of internet basic governance uh, policy. Um, those are the regional internet registries. Uh, then there's another bucket that is sort of the operator communities where people work together on what the standards of operating are on the global internet and that might be you know from exchanging traffics to defending yourself against denial of service attacks to uh, the best way to build out routers and switches and certain configs uh, etc there are um, groups like this called uh, for system operators so those are the people that are you know know, building services or unix environments or um, you know, making changes to your, your your services, like Lisa is an example of that. Uh, and then there are niche areas of, uh, for things like exchanging traffic, like um, 
like peering forums where you might uh, exchange traffic between networks. Uh, and and we could spend hours on on all of them, uh, but you know the, the the point of this is to understand that there are there are places where anybody who has a vested interest can become a stakeholder in 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 these environments and drive or participate in changes on the global internet. Uh, whatever your particular interest may be, you can show up at these meetings and, and interact and, and help shape the future uh, of that particular subject. <clears throat> but there are many of them to be involved with. And, and I happen to be involved in, in pretty much all of them, but, but most, people, most people's job function kind of falls into to one area or another. So now I'm getting slightly off topic, but uh, the, the well, point no, no, of that no. is that... Yeah, you're, you're not getting off topic. What... With the point that I, I think uh, that I, I I wanted to get across that I think you have effectively is that there are so many different organizations um, that cover all the different areas of how the internet operates and works. Uh, so anyone interested can find uh, a, a organization or a group or a nonprofit or whatever to participate in in that process and have their voice heard and learn and be educated and meet others who are also interested in that in that same space. Um, but what I haven't been able to do outside of Bill Norton's book, um, which I don't think he's updated in a couple of years, which admittedly I haven't updated mine in probably a year and a half, two years now, um, which is the internet peering playbook. Where does one go to even see the, all the different organizations that exist and what they're focused, uh, on, uh, and, and how to participate? Like, is there... A, I don't think there's a single resource out there that kind of maps the landscape of all these organizations and who they're relevant for and how they participate in the process. Do you know of one? Uh, that's a, it's kind of a tough question. So, so peering as a whole, uh, it, so, so first just sort of generally means uh, ex exchanging traffic on the global internet, um, you know, traffic exchange between organizations, usually, you know, very large service providers or very large content providers or very large eyeball providers. Um, the places where they, they uh, exchange traffic are, are all over the world where they are in common. Uh, and there's usually some kind of bilateral agreement where they exchange the traffic for you know, sort of a break even in, in cost. Um, the idea behind this is that you are a similar size player. So in part why, uh, or let's say you get similar value uh, for connecting to each other. So as a very simple example, if you are a big video streaming provider like a Netflix or the like, and you want to deliver your content to, uh, let's say, um, you know, iPhones on uh, you know, T-Mobile or AT&T or Sprint or whatever, it would make sense for them to connect directly in a way to get that content to you uh, in the most efficient way possible where you're not traveling, um, you know, sending that traffic through another middle player. Those those people are of similar size and get equal-ish value and would have a conversation together. If if you as a listener are interested in getting involved in peering, you sort of have to think about yourself, the, the size of the organization that you represent, the kind of traffic that you're exchanging, uh, and, and the kind of peers that you want to interact with. So if you're you know, a small software firm or a hardware developer, you're just interested in basic internet infrastructure, there are definitely peering forums out there for you. Right? There's um, one called the Global Peering Forum, GPF. There's one in Europe called EPF. 
there are lots of microforums that are done by uh, various providers of internet exchanges uh, where they will host uh, small social events to get you to meet other prospective peers and other people in a geography or a regional space or a, a service uh, silo that might be uh, beneficial to, to for all of you to meet. But it, it really straddles a lot of things, right? This is interpersonal networking, um, you know, physical networking and logical networking sort of combined into one set of forums uh, called peering. Uh, this is probably a very short answer to, again, a, a very deep topic where we can speak for many hours on. The resources, though. So I, I'm a new virgining network engineer, very interested in, uh, you know, just participating and learning mm -hmm. uh, and meeting people such as yourself. But I don't know really where to go. Like, I don't know what resources are. Is there... Is there a, a website or a book or uh, some documentation that says, look, here's the all the different organizations, and you've named at this point about a dozen of them, right? From Aaron to Afrinic to you, you name it, to, um, you know, Apricot and whatnot. But where can I go to say, see, here's all the different organizations and here's what purpose they serve in the community? Um, and how they impact the day-to-day, -day, uh, you know, lives of those who leverage the the global internet. So I, I really appreciate the, the sounding like a leading question for uh, for appearing to be pitch. Uh, um, there is a database called Appearing uh, DB, which I am part of. I do serve on their board and uh, the chairman of that nonprofit organization. That does serve as a place for internet exchanges networks and facilities to post information about themselves, where they are, the size of their network, the kind of people they're in, the kind of networks that they're inter interested in interacting with. Uh, it's called peeringdb.org. It doesn't have necessarily information about the places where you would join the community in person, those other, those other conferences that I'm talking about where you actually meet the people but it is there for the purpose of allowing you to say, I have my infrastructure in, let's say, you know, 529 Bryant in Palo Alto. And I want to know what other networks are in this facility that I can exchange traffic with. Uh, you can certainly go there, register yourself, and find those kind of interactions. Uh, there's a lot of useful documentation about what peering is. Uh, and, and probably can help lead you to uh, joining those kind of uh, social events uh, by interacting with your prospective peers. Uh, but that really is just a database of exchanges, networks, and facilities. Um, doesn't quite lead you to those, those those social networking interactions. Yeah, just throw this out there. It, um, it might be worth adding a page that just does list all the different organizations and a very quick summary of what they do and who they are and how to, how to reach out to them. If people are interested, just throwing that out not there. Not a bad idea. Yeah. 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 That's definitely not a bad idea. Um, so let's, let's move on to the other big, big topic that we could talk hours on, um, which is security, right? And, uh, how secure the internet is and it's the for for very good reason it is the topic of uh, choice for nearly everybody whether you're on the data center side or a hosting provider or um, 
a network service provider, it doesn't matter. You know, security is becoming top of mind because it's no longer just the major firms that are being hacked these days. There's a lot of SMBs that are being attacked uh, and ransomware is occurring on a very regular basis. Uh, we're, we're seeing these conversations left and right literally daily now, whereas it used to be maybe once every couple of months. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the future and stability of the internet, given how fragile it is, as we've been discussing, um, and how, you know, unfortunately, uh, very few companies are taking se- security seriously, I would say. Um, there's still so many gaping doors that they're leaving open inside their organizations uh, and not wanting to invest in, uh, you know, the bodyguards and just the basic security one-on-one principles uh, where you know, I try to liken online security to in digital security, no different than physical security. You know, you have to have best practices like leaving your lights on um, to deter people from coming out locking your doors, um, you know, having, having some type of way to protect yourself and your family. Uh, if someone does break in, um, very few people will just blatantly ignore a lot of those things. And a lot of organizations are blatantly ignoring those things. And I guess I'm, I'm a little worried and I'm curious what your, what your opinion is about the future, uh, instability of this, uh, you know, this engine that drives, you know, our, our jobs and our way of life uh, and the way of life of basically the majority of the civilized world right now um, from just being completely demolished for a variety of reasons. You know, what, is there any hope that you see down, down the line or even today? (laughs) This is another awesome topic we could spend a lot of time on. Uh, I think First, it's most important that we recognize that security is getting better in that sort of big umbrella sense. Things are getting better on the global internet, right? Your, your data is getting safer, sort of. Uh, you think of it like media a bit, right? The things that you hear about are always bad. You, you never hear, uh, hey, for the last 20 years, you know, this organization has kept your credit card and, and personal information secure um, because that's not a story. Uh, so, so it's first really important to realize that there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of organizations that store your data, all kinds of data that is important and that hasn't been breached. It doesn't mean to say that it is perfectly secure and unobtainable. It just means, to, I mean, to say that Things are getting better, even though we hear more in the media about uh, big breaches, because now that has become a more critical part of our life, right? Where we think, I, I now really care if my, uh, my bank information is obtained because all of my money is there. And that's how I interact with all of my, my service providers and pay people. And, uh, you know, I could get personally attacked or lose all my data or someone can spoof me as a, an individual on the Internet or in person and, and steal my identity uh, for, for whatever value that has. It was a lot easier to do that years ago. Right. We, we just hear about it more now. Um, in, in fact, you know, before the Internet, it was far easier to spoof an identity. Right? I could just walk into some place and come up with an idea and become 
you know, you or anybody else a lot easier than, <clears throat> than I can with the internet resources, which allows some verification to say you can validate who you are. Uh, so, so that being said, you know, going back to the actual topic of, is there hope? Yeah, of, of course there's hope. The, the, the biggest trouble with, with sort of security implementation is that it means we give up ease of use uh, in order to implement better security. Uh, the most simple example I'm, I'm sure all of us see today are that two-factor authentication is becoming fairly standard for things. And, uh, and, and by that, I mean a second factor of something, whether that's a text message with a code uh, or a, you know, a fob that contains a key or an app on your phone that has something that you have to say, I've got a push message, yes, this is actually me. Some second factor that's aside from basic credentials, a username and password to say, yep, uh, I really am me, I have both of these things, let me in, let me have access to these things. It's becoming more normal. People are getting a little less lazy about operating services. And that's great. Uh, it, it's also nice that, you know, pins, generally speaking, are starting to increase in the number of digits. You know, they're not just four digits anymore. They're becoming six or eight uh, or uh, a second verbal password on some device, uh, uh, et cetera. So, it, it, yes, there's hope. I, I think all of that hope involves education. It involves teaching the users of services that uh, you're going to have to do a little more to protect your data. Uh, you know, don't be stupid. It's it's kind of like when you when you travel someplace, you wouldn't walk around with a map uh, in one hand and cash in the other. Uh, to the same extent, you should learn that when you're say looking at email or looking at a website, you know, do they do you really expect this kind of communication to come from the person that it says it is? Should I check in some other way to see that, you know, this really, this really is my buddy, Sean asking me for money. Should I be, you know, clicking on this link and sending him, uh, you know, some money over Zelle? I don't know. Maybe I should also call him and say, Hey, did you really send me this to, to ask me for some money? You know, so I, I, I think that things are getting better. I think that education is becoming more important. And I, and I think part of this scary media is, is good for people in some ways, in that at least it's getting them to think, yes, security is important. Uh, and maybe I'll have to do, take a few more steps. And, and probably shouldn't treat this as a, a fear, right? Like putting your data out there is really the only, the only place for it. Uh, just, just an awareness and an education and a process that things are going to become uh, a little better at authenticating you on the global internet. So that's that's for the consumer. I'm more worried about the ability for you know, as we discussed very earlier with IPv6 and the nearly infinitesimal number of IP addresses that are available. The the attacks on the core of how the internet works and the major carriers to basically shut down um, the grid, right? Because the internet is a utility. I bit and speak speak of it as a utility more than anything else. Um, and just as there are the there is the ability to basically shut down entire grids, there's the ability to shut down the entire internet. Um, how how is that evolved into in with that being said, um, one of the things that you have taught me 
is how many legions of individuals are working day in and day out, uh, and many of them volunteering their time to keep and protect the, the global internet uh, and keep it working and functional and alive, both state, non-state, public, not, pro- not public, private, you know, variety of actors who are all focused and determined towards keeping everything working, right? Um, but I'm still stunned. Literally every day I wake up uh, and I check my email that things still work. <laughs> to be totally blunt, <laughs> I'm just blown away uh, with what I've learned and, and what I know um, and some of the stuff that uh, I've learned recently just working with uh, InfraGuard, uh, which is a public-private yeah. organization with the FBI. Um, it's just literally every day I wake up, I'm blown away that this whole paradigm still exists. And I'm just waiting. And it's the, you know, I don't want to call it conspiracy theorist, but it's the, uh, there's just a part of me that just feels that there's, how, how is this happening, Aaron? How is it possible that this thing called the internet still exists and it's still working today and hasn't been completely shut down? You know, sometimes I'm, I'm blown away myself, right? It, it does continue to evolve and uh you know the, the sort of group you're you're talking about of, of various groups of people that are that are sort of helping keeping everything working by by, by plugging the holes in the dam uh, do manage to keep up somehow and it, and it is really amazing when you step back and think about it all you know every time uh, a new device or service or software gets deployed uh we, there are opportunities for uh, vulnerabilities and attacks, and it doesn't matter if it's a, a light bulb or you know a new iPhone that comes out or you know something. I'm not suggesting that iPhones are vulnerable. I mean, of course, everything is vulnerable, um, but but every time you have, in particular, a very large number of objects out there that are the same object, you know, let, let's just use like a light bulb for an example. You know, a firmware update could happen while you're sleeping. That's just an automatic, you know, I've, I've gone out and checked with my vendor. It said, give me some new software, and I took it. And, and it's, it could have, while you were sleeping, opened up a vulnerability for some, you know, uh, miscreant to use as a bot network to attack things and, you know, Suddenly, there could be a billion devices on the global internet that are available as a, an attack vector for taking something down or using as a, a ransom tool. Uh, and, and it really is, you know, absolutely frightening when you think about just how fragile it is. And in, in particular, that you know, anybody can start a company, right? Anybody can invent a, a piece of hardware, a piece of software, and, and if they're if they make it right, they're they're sort of successful enough by some definition of getting their gear deployed at lots of uh, homes or offices or networks, uh, and and they just haven't found or haven't accounted for a bug or a vulnerability. You know, that device can become owned or uh, used in ways that it was never designed to be used, and it is sometimes very hard to protect against those things. Uh, I, I know you, you sort of mentioned the, you know, I guess the White House out there, the, the people of the world that, that try and uh, protect us from sort of internet infrastructure damage in big ways. 
you know, we're, we're lucky enough to have systems in place uh, where we have communication channels to assist in these kind of things before they become big, where, you know, if a, if a known vulnerability, well, I shouldn't say known, a vulnerability comes to be known that can have massive impact before it hits the media, where you inform both the white hats and the miscreants out there, there's usually a back-channel discussion, which is uh, with affected parties, with vendors, uh, for you know, how you fix these vulnerabilities before um, the rest of the world gets to know about it or before it leaks. Uh, and preventative measures are put in place to try and minimize impact. And, and somehow that, that has continued to exist. Those communication channels have continued to exist uh, and, uh, and we're capable of reducing the impact of, of so many things that happen on the global Internet today uh, rather than, you know, just having this, this, this wild um, sort of Internet war going on between uh, devices and, uh, and vulnerable things. Uh, whether that's just malicious for fun or, or for money or political or whatever reason, but yes, it's, it's fragile. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, I wrote, I wrote down a couple of things that you've said. Uh, one that I think is going to be one of my favorites is your data is getting safer, sort of. <laughs> yes. that, that should be like the, the new the new mantra for what's going on, but you give up ease of use to ensure better security. And I think that's, that is a key, definitely a key mantra that people, I hope start getting embedded into their day-to-day discourse uh, and day-to-day lives is needing to give up ease of use. But I think as a byproduct of what we were talking about earlier, early on in this conversation of those who are focused on the top layer and not focused on the bottom layer it seems like we have legions who are focused on trying to make things simpler and easier uh, and more comfortable and, you know, almost encouraging the laziness when that's actually counterintuitive to the, the security that we're talking about that's going to prevent major catastrophes from occurring. Um, so, I, you know, there's no... I'm not ask, mentioning this, looking for a response or seeing if you have an answer to it because I don't think there is an answer to it. Um, other than just trying to make people more aware. So, you know, to the other quote that I wrote down, which is, yes, there is hope, but this hope is predicated on education. Um, So we just, you know, for those who are listening, I hope that you instill both within yourself, but those you have around you, your sphere of influence, that desire to become educated on how this stuff works, which is probably why you're listening to this podcast in the first place. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's, the most reasonable takeaway is to continue to question things, right? Like, you, you, you know, as a, as, a, as a global community, we are reactionary in nature. Uh, the great example is the, the breach of uh, one of the, the credit, um, uh, uh, was it Experience Equifax. or Equifax? Experience or Equifax? Equifax uh, had a breach. And the reaction to that breach was to allow people to have a tool to freeze their credit so that you couldn't have hard credit checks done against Experian, Equifax, or TransUnion. Rather than to react to the reaction being, you know, how, how do we actually make your data secure? It was, well, let's just, just remove the, the attack vector, which is getting the actual credit check, and enable you to have a tool, uh, which is freeze, temporarily lift, and then add an education campaign. 
pay everybody uh, with something to lose, you know, uh, you should be educated as a consumer, uh, go to these three sites and uh, freeze your credit. And if you need to actually uh, get credit somewhere and have it checked, you know, log into these sites, put a temporary lift on it, uh, allow them to do their transaction, and then back it's frozen. Effectively like two-factor authentication. And that one is a, a great example of uh, a change in how consumers interact with those services to protect your own data. Whereas another example, the other one you mentioned, which is how do you make it easier for consumers but make things more secure and feel better that things are getting better even though you're sort of getting lazier? Uh, Apple is sort of the antithesis of this. Almost every uh, product, website, app that you go to now where Apple is aware that you are creating a username and password, the default action it gives now is it suggests some really long string that it then stores in a, uh, um, you know, a security sort of contained database of unique passwords that are in your iCloud for all of your services. None of those passwords are commonly used across services, uh, et cetera. They're all unique, very long things that are you know, nearly unbreakable. And that is the default behavior so that your, your face recognition or your thumbprint uh, is now part of accessing that database on your devices to access all your services with, with credentials that uh, are needed. And that's great. It makes it easier for the consumer, and it is better security overall on the global Internet without you really having to do anything. But you should generally just sort of question things. You know, when you look at them, uh, you know, anything where you're creating new credentials, think about what kind of data you're putting out on those services Think about whether or not you use those credentials in other services. Right? You don't, don't really want to use your, your same credentials for your bank account as you do for you know, some, some unknown small service that uh, you're registering for to buy something online and have it shipped to you. Because the likelihood is the security is not as good at some small vendor as it would be at, say, your bank. Uh, and you don't want those credentials exposed on the global Internet. So, you know, really, the takeaway should be, should be just to question things. If they, if they seem reasonable, then you can probably assume they're reasonable. If they seem like they have a lot of different security layers, then they're probably security conscious and care. And don't put everything in one place. Yeah, I think that's the key. Don't put everything in one place. Um, for my, you know, I, I store all my passwords using a uh, encrypted app uh, but I also have to write down what the uh, the master key is and I learned the hard way <laughs> about three years ago that if I lose the document that I have the master key on I'm fucked <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure yeah so um, and it's the same thing for those who who have you know Bitcoin um, keys and whatnot if they if they don't remember or store those keys they could lose access to their entire wallet basically lose the, the entire all of the uh, the value that they've had but um god man we've covered so much ground in my head as i'm spinning um as it usually does after our conversations which is why we usually end up grabbing a cocktail afterwards which Indeed. i wish i could do but it's too early both your time and my time to make that happen um but is there are there any topics i didn't cover that you you think we should cover um, you know, one of the other pieces that I wanted to explore with you is around network automation. 
um, which I know you've been a, uh, a leader in, uh, both personally and professionally. Um, you know, you kept asking questions when we were working together is like, why is this not automated? Why is this not automated? We could just write some, some script to automate this task. And I remember you upon coming into United layer, when we were working together, you eliminated like three quarters of someone's job, uh, that you, uh, basically ended up replacing just by automating the tasks that they were doing on a day-to-day basis, which I found fascinating and humorous at the same time. Um, is there, is there anything on that topic you want to keep exploring about where, where that's going into the future in terms of network automation? Well, I, I mean, you know, the, the, the great topic to breach there is, is sort of that job security topic, right? We've, we, we know that humans make mistakes. Right? We, we know that infrastructure and services are becoming more and more critical in that, and a failure is uh, you know, not only less of an option, but it also has a bigger impact to you as an individual if you make them. Yeah, I, I think the, the the big takeaway that that should happen from any automation conversation is to not be afraid to automate your own job. Is that if you implement practices that make things that are repeatable safer for deploying your services or interacting with objects for regular changes, you are doing your company a service that is good and uh, and you will end up working less and being more valuable. So as long as you convey that, you know, and it takes, it takes some effort to articulate this kind of message, uh, I am working fewer hours for giving you a more stable environment or better services for your customers or less likely for error. Uh, you're creating more value for yourself. You're also creating more opportunity for yourself and you're more likely to become promoted. Uh, I find that so many people who you know, are sort of naysayers of automation, scripting, uh, repeatability for workflows, integration, APIs, coding, et cetera, really are just afraid to lose their job. I mean, th- this is, uh, you know, a- about to go way off the deep end to, into like, you know, the UBI conversation of, of what does infrastructure look like as a whole uh, down the road. But, you know, automation is happening whether we want it or not. And there's, there's nothing wrong with embracing that, that things are going to change uh, and that, and that, you know, for the most part, automation is good. It's definitely helping to remove error. Yeah, and I, I see that on a regular basis as we're talking with companies about um, leveraging remote IT services uh, for for work within an organization um, and not needing to have a full-time staffed person um, sitting in an office to perform a lot of the functions that can be done remotely. That doesn't mean everything because there's still, you know, employees still need laptops uh, to be replaced or looked at um, and or devices to be checked physically. But a lot of the work that people are hardened against even considering outsourcing can be outsourced, is being outsourced and will be outsourced. And uh, to your point, if you're not thinking about it and doing it today, it's just, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when, so you may as well get on the forefront of it. And if you can become an expert on automation and the tools leveraged to automate, that's going to be far more valuable than the uh, skill set that you have that may be, you know, 
a thing of the past in the very near future. Um, and that, you know, that is another lesson that I've learned knowing you over the years is just how valuable that automation can be in taking back your life, which I'd have to assume, you know, that that mindset is one that I've picked up over the years, A, by knowing you and a handful of others, but also through you know listening to Tim Ferriss and uh, religiously listening to his podcast and reading his books and whatnot, where he's always focused on optimization as a human. Um, I've got to assume that that's also what's afforded you the ability to multitask the way that you multitask. Uh, and to that end, you know, are there any tips and tricks that you can give those listening that help you be as productive as you are throughout the day? Absolutely. Uh, so, so first I'll say, yes. I, I mean, I think, I think the embrace automation is the new work with your brain, not with your back. Um, that's the, the evolution of the work model. Uh, as, as for tips that allow you to actually manage multiple hats, this is going to sound like a, a ridiculously simple piece of advice. But the advice is to live by your calendar. You figure out how to actually manage time slots, uh, schedule events, and wear the hat you want to wear, wear while it's on your calendar and only while it's on your calendar. And this allows you to uh, not only have multiple jobs, multiple hats, multiple interests, plan your life to the ability to uh, multitask, including holiday and, um, and making really efficient use of your time while they're scheduled. I, I, I cannot stress enough how much living by my calendar has absolutely changed my life. Uh, and not only to the ability to multitask, but to have this uh, really fantastic life balance that involves a lot of exploration of the world and the exploration of people and cultures and, and, and really good, healthy balance in my life. Yep. As you, uh, you live it, man, which is also very much appreciated. I'm sure you may be, are you in Santa Cruz right now? Uh, I am. Yesterday I was in St. Thomas and on Monday I'm going to raft the Grand Canyon. You know, it's uh, <laughs> that kind of life. So you actually did make that trip out to St. Thomas, huh? I did indeed. Got back last night. Nice. Um, so you're, you know, the reason why I brought that up is you're probably sitting at your desk right now and looking out over the uh, the Pacific Ocean. I am indeed. Yes, it's a, it's beautiful. Um, so related to I guess everything that we've been talking about, I have a few final final questions before we'll we'll let our listeners go. Um, one of which is, what is a a myth that you hear repeated over and over again uh, in our industry that you think needs to be debunked and should be stricken from people's brains? Uh, you know, I don't really, you know, something, nothing really comes to mind as something that is uh, high on the list of myths. There are, are tons of misconceptions out there. You know, I, I guess in the, in the data center space, which is kind of the umbrella that I think you generally prefer to talk about in these podcasts, uh, you know, one myth that's probably pretty important is that not all data centers are the same. Um, I think I think P 
people have sort of sort of sort of gotten used to RFPs where you tick some basic boxes and, and never really look under the hood about what's important. Uh, I would I would say you know one simple myth is don't assume because your vendor provides a service called something whatever that umbrella service is uh, transit data centers power uh, virtualization services you name it don't assume that they do it well um, ask questions look deeper um, ask how you compare or contrast from your nearest competitors and don't just take their slick as a competitive matrix and assume that this is the data you should be looking at. Uh, ask them real questions. Dig into your vendor. Find out what makes them special. And before just saying yes, uh, you know, I, I, I use, and it's sort of the current topic, but, uh, you know, this one's a change of thing. I use asking about V6 as an example just to find out how uh, well connected the organization is to changing technology. And if you can't answer some simple questions about what your company is doing with V6, then, then then I assume that you haven't actually been paying attention to something that's been changing for the last 10 years. So what else is failing inside your company? Um, that's probably a good good sort of myth buster uh, topic to leave you with. Yeah, that's good. Like, what what are the questions that are the canary in the uh, the coal mine, right? Um, exactly. Yeah. One of those that we talk about is the 3 a.m. rule. You know, what what does support look like at 3 a.m. if things break? And if it means that someone has to, like, wake up, get out of bed to answer a phone or to log into something and or drive to a location, that's not a very good strategy, uh, especially when you're dealing with supporting people's production infrastructure. Um, yeah, and, and test it. You know, don't just take their word for it. Right. Um. So what is something that you've experienced in the last three months or so that was truly uh, transformative for you or mind blowing or, you know, what was, is there something that you've learned that you were like, Oh my God, this is incredible. Or this is, this is unique and truly different. Well, uh, I'm going to, Giving you an answer is probably the antithesis of what you expect, uh, which is that I, I continue to travel more and more places in the world that are less connected. Uh, I get deeper into, you know, smaller secondary and tertiary cities and well-known places and into jungles and areas of Africa that are, um, you know, in, in developing areas where they're still, you know, on motorcycles and, um, and 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 going places to fill buckets of water to bring back to serve their their home. Uh, I think the most interesting thing that I've I've seen or learned is that people's quality of life tends to be better when they have uh, less connectivity to the internet. You know, the biggest thing that I've seen, particularly in the last few years, is that the places that are less connected, even though they desire better connectivity, talk to each other in the streets. Uh, they play music, they dance, they have real dialogue uh, and not walk around looking in their devices and bumping into things. And it's it's been really sort of refreshing and eye-opening and scary all at the same time. I think the more places that I see in the world, the more I realize that uh, it, it's sometimes healthier to, to really just be 
disconnected from all of these technologies and services, which is so funny for me to say as a, as a technologist. Um, well, amen. Hallelujah, brother. I think the, uh, taking for those of us who do have to, because of our professions be connected, taking the time to disconnect and turn it off and put it away and just be with the people around you and the experience that you're having right now, um, is so important and it's important just to our own humanity, uh, to reconnect with, with who we are and the people around us and then how we relate to, to them versus how we relate to the technology that's leveraging, uh, being leveraged to communicate with others. And we, we miss the focus of those day-to-day interactions, which can be and should be some of the most valuable that we have on a day-to-day basis. So, uh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. And I, I almost want to, uh, give you a big hug right now. <laughs> In fact, yeah. I do want to give you a big hug right now. Um, and, and your, uh, your beautiful bride, Stacy, I wish, you know, I truly do miss you guys and wish, wish we were closer. But, um, with that, my friend, I have one last question for you. Uh, and I will let you get back to your day and hopefully, hopefully we can both disconnect on this, on this beautiful day for a couple hours and just enjoy the people we're with. Um, but do you love data centers, Aaron Hughes? <laughs> of course I love data centers. Data centers actually are what originally made me feel special as a geek. It was like the, the, the Mecca for, for geeks was to be able to refer to data centers in a time when geeks had nothing, right? We went from machine rooms and closets and jiffy places in the back of, uh, um, railways to these these beautiful, amazing, secure buildings where we could all get together and put our infrastructure in it was safe and secure and could grow. And there, there's something that touches my my heart that really makes me so proud to be part of an industry that evolved even the creation of a you know the idea that we have a, a space for our our infrastructure. So yes, I love data centers. Thank you, brother. Well, the industry is better for having you in it, and I'm I'm better for knowing you, buddy. So I appreciate everything that you've taught me over the years. Cheers. The same goes for you. All right, man. Thank you for listening, everybody. Have a good one. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, You can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.